Hello there, my name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Following a chance meeting with broadcaster Martin James while filming a 10 car fly fishing video with Mike Roden on the River Ribble mid-summer of 2012, I was subsequently invited to the Radio Lancashire studio early one Sunday morning to record two instalments of Martin's popular series at the water's edge. Obviously, I went in mentally prepared, but also with a script of bullet point reminders, as like Martin a couple of weeks later when I interviewed him for audio angling, I'm not used to being on the receiving end of things. Actually, when the whole thing got going and I was up and away, the written prompts were unnecessary. But what it did demonstrate to me was the need to be a little bit more sympathetic towards other people I interview, and also the speed at which I myself talk when nervous or under pressure, which never having been in that position before, I was blissfully unaware of. But never mind, here we go. At the Water's Edge, with Martin James, on BBC Radio Lancashire. Hello anglers and everyone welcome. My guest this week is the return of Phil Williams from Claytonley Woods. Phil's really an avid sea angler these days. But in the past, he's fished for lots of species of fish. He made a search for all the salmonids back in the 70s. He wrote a book in 1980s on small boat fishing. At the time, it was a revelation. It was an eye-opener. It was the first time that I can remember... A book had been written specially for the small boat or dinghy angler. And when we look at the Fylde Coast and Morecambe Bay or North Wales Coast, there's lots of small boat anglers go afloat. And I reckon a lot of this was down to the book that Phil wrote alongside companion Brian Douglas. They co-authored this book. Phil, welcome back this evening to another At The Waters Edge programme. Nice to be here again. Why did you write a book on small boat fishing at sea? It was 1984, actually, and I dug it out the other day. And, as you say, it was a revelation, but a revelation in the sense that I can't believe how antiquated it looked, how far things had come since that time. But at that time, as I said last week, the anglers were going out in little tiny boats, little seagulls on the bike. Nobody really knew what was out there. Safety gear virtually didn't exist there was no radios there was no electronics there was no nothing most people didn't carry life jackets or flares so there was no knowledge really on the seamanship side of it people just thought you went out and you fished but the seamanship side of it really came into it as well because obviously to catch fish you've got to bring them back and to bring them back you've got to survive so you need to be competent at at handling boats and your seamanship and understanding tides weather all that type of thing and there was no, no internet then either, so there was no source of information apart from delving into libraries or just learning on the hoof, which was really quite a dangerous way of doing it. So we gathered all our pool information, myself and Brian wrote the book, but we gathered a lot of information off a lot of other people and from personal experiences, both good and bad, because I mean, I've had some very bad experiences out there as well as the good ones. People tend to not think about that, they only see the fish. We gathered it all together, we tried to put something together which might hopefully help other up-and-coming dinghy fishermen get at least a handle on how to approach the subject, and particularly the seamanship side of it. Most of this fishing, I believe, took place on the Fylde Coast. Most of the learning 
took place on the Fylde Coast. Yeah, it did actually. The Fylde Coast and uh, around Walney Island, but the Fylde Coast in particular, and the boats, as I say, were very, very small, so you couldn't stray very far. If we went over to a place called Shell Wharf, which is about four miles off, which people just bypass at the moment... It was an expedition if you went out that far on a day. You just, I can't envisage doing it on a little Seagull engine. Let's look at the dinghies and the engines that you were using in those far-off days of the 1980s. Seems strange talking about far-off days, but it's been such a dramatic change in safety at sea and boat construction and engine quality that I suppose we can say in those far-off days... Well, predominantly the boats back then were displacement boats, and if you saw a 16-foot length displacement boat, that was a biggie. Probably uh, 14, 13, 12, even 11-foot boats were used out there. They were little tiny things, and there was no safety features with regard to buoyancy inside them. If they filled up with water, they sank. It was as simple as that. Open boats, no cuddies on them. Cuddies came in partway along our journey, but... uh, just small open boats, very, very dangerous boats. People say, oh, well, the seaworthy boats, they roll like pigs, they're horrible things, they're very, very slow. The speed is governed by their, their actual length and the size of the engine on the back. Even if you increase the size of the engine, the boats won't go any faster than what they're designed to go, which is usually about four to six knots. Just break in there. What's a cuddy? A cuddy is one of these little sort of pram hood fiberglass cabins on the front that you... It's not got doors on. You don't sort of go inside it like a cabin. You just sit under it. So you get a bit of shelter when you're fishing. They did exist in, in theory, but most people didn't have them back then. It was just little little tiny open boats. Very cold, very bleak, bad handling. Boats, very, very lightweight because there were no tractors on the beach. People didn't have four-wheel drives. It was all handballing up and down. We used to meet at the five-bar gate at Cleveland's, uh, maybe several of us with the dinghies, and launch all the boats one at a time, everybody pushing the one boat to the water's edge and dragging it back because that's all we could do. No tractors, no winches. It was body power. No roller coaster trailers for centralising the thing. A wave would come and pick it off and slam it down on the axle. No galvanising, or it, it was available, but it was very, very rare. You couldn't afford to do it. You'd paint your trailers, but you'd only paint them on the outside when the rust had come on the inside and the damn things had rot away from the inside and one day, all of a sudden, whoosh, gone. So we've, you've described the boat in pretty good detail. I'm feeling cold and wet already. What about the engines? The dominant engine was the Seagull engine, and everybody says, oh, the Seagull engine's fantastic. They had them at Dunkirk, and they got buried in the sand, and they dug them up and reconditioned them and blah, blah. They were horrible things. Horrible things to start at times. They were horrible things to keep going. Little tiny short-range fuel tanks on them. No, they don't bear any resemblance to what we've got today. People coming into it today just do not realise the hardship of those early days, I tell you. So we had these, these unsafe boats... And these inferior engines, what about the tackle? One thing I would add there, we we had all this inferior equipment, this terrible, terrible stuff, but we also had fish, which we don't have today. We had a lot of good fish. But anyway... You had wonderful cod fishing in those days where you had a realistic chance of not catching a 20-pound cod, but a 30-pound cod. Well, I started seriously dinghy fishing off the file course in the mid-70s, and between then and the mid-80s, that 10-year span... The fishing was just unbelievable, the cod fishing. But what a lot of people, they put the rose-tinted glasses on and they don't realise that there were not a lot of cod. There was a lot of big cod, a lot of good cod, but not a lot of cod. You could go out there and you could blank. 
you could not get a bite all day sometimes, but when you did get a bite, you had a very realistic chance of it being a double, a 20, 30, even bigger. Then you had good ray fishing. Many people call them skate, but they're not skate, they're rays. Yeah, the Thornback raised it off the Lancashire coast. Not so much Cleveland's off the file coast itself. It was more into Morecambe Bay, particularly on the edges, on the rougher ground, on the edges of Morecambe Bay. And you can only fish that realistically on the smaller tides because it runs like hell in Morecambe Bay. The charter boats used to tap into that. In fact, I fished a competition. I couldn't tell you what year it was. It'd be sometime in the 80s aboard Keith Philbin's Happy Hooker. And it was the lifeboat competition when all the, all the charter boats from Fleetwood went out. And we went to one mark somewhere down towards uh, Loon Deep. We did nothing for an hour, hour and a half, whatever. Motored up to this other spot, dropped in. So we'd only got a partial day fishing. And we broke the port record for Thornback Rays with 97 that day. And two other boats broke it the same day as well. That's how prolific the ray fishing was. But then it nosedived to the point where you could hardly find any rays at all. Now, a lot of people put that down to the pressure put on the on the spur dog fishery with the long lines because the rays were coming up as bycatch, they went into decline. Skates, rays, these kind of fish which only produce a few very well-formed young can only recover very, very slowly from a hard hit like that and they went into real decline. The last, I don't know, maybe four or five years they've started coming back but not to their old traditional haunts. I suppose one of our prolific fish back in those early days, the 80s, was the place. Always going out there, catching place off a of Warney Island with spots as big as half a crowns. Yeah, Ernsey Bay, yeah, Walney Island. We used to trail the boat up, though. The fishing was that good, we couldn't sail across, obviously, with a plodding boat like that. It would have taken us days to get there and back. So we used to trail around and launch there, and we'd just go out very, very, very close in, very shallow water on the edge of the banks. I remember one trip with a chap called Mickey Murs. I can't remember the other lad who was in with us. I think it was a lad called Irving. No, I can't remember. But anyway, we fished there, and we, we didn't fish a full tide because we would dig bait at low water as much blow lug as we could get, get into the boat, get into into the bay and get fishing there. And uh, we'd 530 in a session. That's how prolific it was. You mentioned blow lug. What is blow lug? Right, well, there was a time in the, 19, uh, the mid-1980s when I was going to do a different PhD project, and the PhD project I wanted to do was try and prove something that anglers had said all along, that blow lug and black lug were two separate species. The scientists were saying, no, no, it's just a bigger version of the same thing. Blowlug are the small worms that you find in the middle shore and the upper shore that live in a U-shaped burrow. There's like a coil of rope at one end and indentation at the other, and they, and they live in this burrow, and you can dig them with a fork by going across. Blacklug live in vertical holes right down on the lower shore. I was getting geared up to do this as a PhD project at Liverpool Uni, and we found out that somebody else had already started the same project down at um, Swansea, I think it was. They were about six or eight months into the project. They obviously saw it through using DNA analysis, and they actually established that blowlug and blacklug are two different species. So that would have been another interesting one for the file course, but alas, it never came off. Do we get blacklug on the fold coast? You get a lot of blacklug on the file coast, not only on the file coast, on the Southport beaches, you get them up uh, on the north side of Morecambe, you get them around Fleetwood. Most of the people these days pump them, but when we first started, it was all spade digging them with these specially modified spades where the bend in the end of the spade where the shaft went in was straightened, the spade was cut maybe three or four inches wide and about six inches long, up to your armpits, chasing worms down a hole in winter with your sleeves rolled up, freezing cold. The good old days. And they can move. You're not kidding, they can move, yeah. Back to the tackle in those days. 
very primitive, exactly the same as the boats and the and the equipment. Everything by today's standards looks just so antiquated, so primitive. I think the main thing to say about it was that it was overgunned. And obviously the quality of lines wasn't the same, the, the variation of lines, reels weren't as reliable and as robust. But one thing that does come through, if you look at the traces today, the terminal tackles have changed very, very little. People way back then had got it well and truly sussed. And the one thing that shines through out of all the fishing lessons I've learned, all the things I've seen, the things I've tried, simplicity is the best approach to catching fish. No complicated rigs, loads of bling on them, beads, spinners, booms, this, that and the other. Simplicity, the flowing trace, the more simple rig you can get, the wire pattern oster, which again looks very, very antiquated. These are the things which will catch fish now, the caught fish then and the older people have got it well sussed at that stage and trace design has carried on through This is Martin James in conversation with Phil Williams author, writer and sea angler We're discussing sea angling off the Fylde Coast In those days we had a large fleet of charter fishing boats working out of Fleetwood They've gone We did, we did Fleetwood, like many ports had got its good and bad points I mean, Andy Bradbury fishes on Blue Mink there today, but he's the only charter boat left there at the moment. When I first started the charter fishing, especially with Keith Philbin, who was a personal friend, I used to go on holiday with him anyway before he had the charter boat. He had Happy Hooker. When I fished it there, there'd probably be about a dozen charter boats, mainly working at weekends, because obviously people were working during the week. It wasn't, wasn't that attractive. The plus points of Fleetwood were that you got a certain amount of shelter, you could fish on the small tides in Morecambe Bay on, on a prevailing southwesterly, you got shelter from Russell Point, you could tuck in somewhere... The bad points were that on the big tide, with it running as hard as it did in the bay, you couldn't get round to Rossell, so it was a bit more difficult to fish. There were plenty of fish there, plenty of rays, and it was thriving. But what happened, well, in my opinion anyway, was that in the recession years, people put the priorities, obviously, forward, and it had to be paying bills, eating, not going charter fishing, and it went into a gradual decline and never recovered. No, and uh, as you say, there's only one person now doing charter fishing, which is a pity because it's very, very popular at one time, wasn't it? I remember when I first moved up up to the northwest, and I went across to Fleetwood and there were all these boats lined up. I remember many, many, many interesting trips out with uh, Gordon Wilson and Wandering Star and Gordon had phoned me up sometimes. I said, what are you doing tonight, Martin? Not a lot, Gordon. Why don't you come across? He said, and we'll go out for the night. We go off fishing for the night come back probably lunchtime the following day and uh, he'd serve up some good meals of steak and chips and all the rest of rest of the food that we anglers liked but we don't eat nowadays because it's not healthy <laughs> i look back at them days with happiness because i always felt there was a lot of fish and you talk about the place fishing the place fishing was absolutely brilliant you talk about uptide fishing when i first come up here nobody done uptide fishing I'd lured my uptide fishing down in the Thames Estuary back in the 50s. How we came about using uptide fishing was fishing off a Sheerness one day and the tide was strong, we couldn't hold bottom, there's a lot of cod about, but we had to get the bait on the bottom, as you know. And I said to my mate, I said, let's cast uptide like we do when we're fishing the Hampshire Avon, we fish upstream, let's try it here, and we did. And it revolutionised sea fishing after that instead of using eight ounces we got away with three four ounces we caught a lot more fish as well and when i come up here everybody wants wanted the stern spots i'd go up the bows i'd be out of the way 
and I'd catch fish. And it really did, as you say, completely change the face of angling. We've got to use lighter tackle, lighter lines, tote fishing today. As you say, 15-pound lines, lighter rods, smaller multipliers. We get great fishing. But, of course, in every port around the country, there's anglers that make a name, summer characters, around the Fleetwood, Blackpool, Morecambe Bay areas. There were some well-known names. Some are still with us. Some have sadly passed on. Bob Gledhill was one of them. I never actually fished with Bob. Being a small boat angler, you tend to always fish with a couple of, of friends. Talk to people on the top, you talk to people socially, but never actually talk to him in the fishing situation. So I knew Bob, I knew him quite well. He was, uh, how can I put it, very dry. Hard to interpret sometimes. A lot of people didn't always interpret him the right way, but he had a really good sense of humour under. He was very good-hearted, he was a very good angler, and I actually liked being in his company, to be honest with you. I found him very amusing. Who were some of the other anglers? On the dinghy side of things, as I say, we didn't actually mix, but of the lads I did fish with in the small boats, Keith Thulbin was one of the main people because cause he was actually building a dinghy when I first got to know him and he went on to build Happy Hook of a Charter Boat and Sarah Jane and, and we dinghy fished off Ross, so we learned a lot. Both of us learned a lot in the very early days because we'd never fished it before. Then we, we met up with a chap called Mickey Murs who was fishing off Walney Island, another dinghy lad. Teamed up with him. I learned a lot on the place fishing and the other types of fishing. The summer cod fishing from Mickey was very, very good angler. Always caught a lot of fish. But the person who probably caught in the small boats disproportionately more fish than he was entitled to, which was always a bit of a, a, rub, the, a rub in the wrong direction, was Brian Douglas. And some of the boats he fished out of, well, they, they were small to say the least. He'd be out there, all kinds of weathers, and he was fishing very, very simple, just flowing traces. We'd come in sometimes and people would say... Why have you changed your trace on your rod? Well, we haven't changed the trace on the rod. You couldn't have caught those fish on that. Just a simple length of a nylon flowing trace and there'd be big fish all over the bottom of the boat. As you said earlier in the programme, Phil, keep it simple. Absolutely keep it simple. I think a person that deserves a lot of credit in the northwest is a chap called Frank B. Now, Frank B was a commercial fisherman who, in the 19... I'm not sure if it was the late 70s... Yeah, it'd be in the 1970s... I decided to buy a charter boat and do, do a bit of charter fishing based on all the knowledge he'd got of Morecambe Bay. Frank's the chap who, who opened up all the ray fishing in Morecambe Bay, developed all of that. And then he turned to dinghy fishing and joined our dinghy club. And it was a chap called Mark Miller, a young lad, on his first trip, I believe, with Frank. Frank had lent him the gear and the bait, who got the £42 Northwest record cod. Again, you don't have to be an expert. No, and that's right. And this is the beauty of angling, whether it's freshwater angling or sea angling. The person that's never been fishing before can go, cast out, and hook a giant. They can indeed, but I mean, behind that hooking of a giant, there's, there's a lot of know-how from Frank with setting the gear up, getting the boat in the right place, telling him what to do. So it wasn't all Mark's doing, but he gets the credit. Frank B was the, the voice of fishing up on that fold coast and up through Morecambe Bay. I actually did an interview again with Frank for a podcast for the site uh, last year. I think he's... God, he must be 86, 87 now. He's as sprightly as you'd ever wish to be for that age, cycling round all over the show. But, yeah, he's the chap. And for some reason, he's very, very optimistic that the cod are going to come back. I don't know what he bases that on, whether he's hearing things on the grapevine. And to a certain extent, Andy Bradbury, who's the skipper of Blue Mink out from Fleetwood currently, he's very optimistic that the big cod are going to come back, but we don't see any signs of it. 
Now I'm going to pose a question to you now, Phil. You may be able to answer it. If you can't, you've probably got some thoughts on it. What effect on the sea angling do you feel that the wind farm out in the Irish Sea will have on the fishing? can't base this answer on factual information from the one off the file coast but i've got some uh, anecdotal evidence of bad effects for the one just off rill tony parry the skipper there tony in the early part of the season fishes for big top in one particular gully where they run and the wind farm has run its cables up this gully for convenience back onto shore and the electromagnetic fields emanating from the cables uh, let me explain Sharks and rays detect prey by picking up the minute electrical signals from the heartbeats that they can detect the prey on that basis. So anything else that interferes with that stops the feeding. Predation out the window. And the top that ran this gully have stopped and moved elsewhere. So I'm presuming this is going to be a similar thing. Electromagnetic fields emanating from the cables are going to push fish away. And experiments have shown that some of the fish species which are pushed away are things like place, eels, cod, and obviously all the all the sharks and rays, they cannot deal with it. They cannot hunt when these uh, signals are coming out of the cables. So something needs to be done on that. We've now, on the Fylde Coast, got some very, very efficient boat, small boat angling clubs. What's the advantage of joining a small boat angling club? Well, it's not so much an advantage as a necessity, really, because, and I actually tried this as an experiment recently, I contacted Seftonborough Council on the Southport side, I contacted the three councils on the file, that's Blackpool, Fylde and Wire, and to put a small boat in with a private vehicle, a four-wheel drive vehicle crossing the beach, you've got to get a permit off them, you've got to have insurance, you've got to have an RYA Powerboat Level 2 handling certificate. One of them also wanted us to write a risk assessment. I said, well, have you not got a copy of a risk assessment that we can use as a generic risk assessment? No, no, we want you to think about it and write your own risk assessment. I've done them before, but most people haven't. They'd be stumped. What they're doing, because of the age of litigation, they don't want people on that beach towing things that might injure other people. Now, what happens is with boat clubs, you've got to have all the same stuff, the insurance, the RYA, RNLIC check, who come and check all your safety equipment every year to make sure it's all in date and it's all there. You've got to have all that for the clubs as well as you would for the local authorities. But the actual risk assessment side and the handling side is taken as red when you're in a club. So it's come to the point where you've really got to be in a club to get any chance of, of getting on the beach. Plus, of course, they've got the tractors for launching the, uh, the boats. So I presume these clubs will uh, help a beginner learn all about seamanship and boat safety and everything before they become a member. Not in a practical sense. They don't sort of sit you down and talk you through it or anything. But if you want advice and help... There's plenty of people to give you that advice and you can look and learn. What I will say, because I actually worked on this, was Blackpool Boat Angling Club down at Squires Gate. We did a video, I actually filmed it for them and edited it for them, on the boat handling and the safety aspects and the safety equipment, which is handed out to every member. The other clubs don't do that, and I'm not criticising the other clubs for not doing it. I'm just saying that this is a, a matter of fact. Today, a small boat angler is more safety conscious... He's got VHF radio, he's got buoyancy suits, as well as life jackets. He wears his life jacket, he's got modern equipment, and he listens to the weather forecast. It becomes a way of life. Yeah, all that happens. It's got to happen. You don't have a choice. You've got to carry all this equipment because you're checked every year by the RNLI. I always feel that if you go out in a boat without a life jacket, you're being an idiot to yourself 
and you're not caring about your family. Well, I can't swim, so I will agree with that. I can't swim a straw. Phil Williams. Have a good week's fishing. Tight lines you all, and bye for now. BBC Radio Lancashire. Simply great radio.